0: to the Brecky team. Now stay tuned for Discovery, your weekly half hour of the latest and greatest in the world of science. Today we have the magnetic appeal of Mars and the ins and outs of face transplants. Hello and welcome. 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 Stand and welcome. Hello, good evening and welcome. To Discovery.
1: Discovery.
2: Discovery. Welcome to Discovery. 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 Sounds like a lot of fun. Somewhere in
1: space. This may all be happening
2: right now. Now, to the speeded up brain of a user, that sound lasts for four hours and sounds like this. Discovery! Uh, yeah.
0: Welcome again to Discovery, the national science radio show, coming to you from the studios of 2SER and broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. Today's show examines Mars's magnetic past and asks the hard questions about face transplants. I'm Matthew Francis, and joining me in the studio we have Jackie Peffer, Natalie Stabe, Noel Hanna, and Chris Stewart. First up, we have Chris with the news. <laughs>
2: Well, we can cross at least one doomsday situation from the end of the world scenario list. The chances of the Earth and everyone on it being destroyed by a freak accident at a particle accelerator or some other astrophysical catastrophe is about one in a billion, according to scientists at MIT. Back in 2000, physicists at the Brookhaven Relativistic Heavy Iron Collider wondered whether smashing particles together at high energies was exposing the planet to the risk of annihilation. They calculated the chances of a particle physics experiment accidentally kicking off a rare but catastrophic event, like the formation of a black hole that quickly devours the Earth and takes our species with it. Fortunately, the odds were very much in our favor. Physicists at MIT, however, have redone the calculation, since they figured that the original mathematics had a selection bias. In essence, it assumed that because we haven't been annihilated yet, It must be a rare thing, and yes, that's possible, or we might just have been lucky so far. Instead, the MIT folk calculated how often you expect an intelligent species to arise in the universe and how long they might take to annihilate themselves in this way. And they estimate our odds of total destruction at the hands of a freak accident at something like one in a trillion every year. So that's okay. If you've managed to score a flight with one of the cheaper airlines around these days, you'll have had to deal with their everyone-for-themselves seating policy. You get your ticket, and when the starters gun fires, everyone makes a dash for the good seats. Mathematicians have shown that, in fact, this is a much faster boarding system than the 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 board-from-the-back-of-the-plane system used by more expensive airlines. And while this may sound counterintuitive, the basic point is this. If you board from the back of the plane, then you quickly form a long queue as those people at the back slowly stow their carry-on baggage and arrange their seat cushions. Only when they're done can the next row sit down, and so on. So you always have a long queue. But with the random seating system, you get a range of queues, and in the long run, the average person gets a seat faster. The best part about this is the mathematicians from Ben-Gurion University in Israel, tackling the problem, quickly realized that while it seems a simple idea, the maths is actually really complex. They wound up using ideas typically seen in calculations about warped space-time, in Einstein's theory of relativity. If you grew up in the 80s, you'll remember the big deal made about the ozone hole, that great gap in the atmospheric ozone layer that was discovered in 1985. Much of the problem was quickly tied to the use of CFCs, or chlorofluorocarbons, a popular industrial chemical at the time, often found in aerosol sprays. In 1987, CFCs were essentially banned, and by the mid-90s the hole was seen to be shrinking. The atmosphere was healing itself. But new data on the amount of CFCs still lingering in the atmosphere suggests that the hole may close slower than expected, and it might take 15 years longer than previously thought for it to fill in completely, sometime around 2065. Scientists from labs in the US took measurements of CFCs in the air across North America and found higher levels than expected. The chemicals are still used in old equipment predating the ban and are in use by many industries in developing countries. However, since CFCs have already been banned, scientists aren't sure what more can be done. And since a thinner ozone layer means more harmful UV radiation from the sun can penetrate to the Earth's surface, we'll have to continue the slip-slop-slap mantra for a while yet. That was Chris with
0: the news. You're listening to Discovery Science Radio. Now, was there ever life on Mars? That's one of the big questions in science today. But what else do we know about our curious red neighbour? Recent evidence suggests that Mars once had magnetic poles, just like Earth. Natalie Stabe has this report.
1: Thanks, Matt. Now, Mars has been studied for a long time. Recently, with advances in technology, we have gained a better understanding of the red planet. A rover is currently on the surface, sending back information about the Martian landscape. Several orbiting spacecraft look at properties such as the atmospheric composition and temperature. An instrument called a magnetometer which measures magnetic field strength, is on board one of these spacecraft. I'm going to tell you about what we hope to learn by studying Martian magnetism and how it may be related to life on Mars. First, I'll explain a bit about magnetism on Earth. The Earth is made up of different layers. The outside layer is the crust and is hard and brittle. Underneath it lies the mantle, which is more dense and ductile. Continental plates made of continental crust float on top of the mantle and so we get continental drift. The continental plates are a bit like jigsaw pieces. We know that the Great Australian Bight fits into Antarctica and that the east coast of South America fits into the west coast of Africa. On a broad scale the South American plate and the African plate separated about 200 million years ago. The crust was ripped apart and the Atlantic Ocean was created. Hot magma from the mantle rose up to fill the space under the ocean to form what is known as a mid-ocean ridge, a giant suture running roughly north-south. The hot magma chills to form new rocks that are carried either east or west of the mid-ocean ridge as the plate moves outwards. Beneath the mantle lies the liquid outer core and the solid inner core. The solid core contains iron that forms a convecting fluid and is believed to be the giant magnet or dynamo that produces the Earth's magnetic field. Today, when you look at a compass, the arrow points north, but it hasn't always been this way. The direction of the Earth's magnetic field has constantly flipped over time. The compass needle has sometimes pointed south and sometimes pointed north for varying time periods, from tens of thousands of years up to millions of years. Now, when the hot magma cools at the mid-ocean ridge, it records the direction of the magnetic field. It has been recording the magnetic field for 200 million years, where the oldest rocks are near Africa and South America and the youngest rocks are near the mid-ocean ridge. During that time, the Earth's magnetic field has flipped many times. The magnetism of the rocks can be thought of as zebra stripes where white is the direction that is the same as today and black is the opposite direction. This pattern is the magnetic memory of the rocks and is symmetrical either side of the mid-ocean ridge. Now back to Mars spacecraft orbiting Mars have not detected the presence of a global magnetic field. Instead, the magnetic field that has been measured is localized and comes from magnetized rocks. It is thought that these rocks could only have become magnetized if there was once a magnetic field, perhaps produced by a system similar to the Earth's outer core dynamo. Furthermore, a pattern similar to the zebra stripes found on Earth has been detected on the surface of Mars. A system of moving continental plates, like on Earth, may have existed on Mars in its early history and the magnetic field flipped as it does on Earth. Now however, plate motion and the magnetic dynamo had ceased and are thought to have stopped within the first billion years as the planet cooled. Now, The Earth's magnetic field acts as a shield from many forms of cosmic radiation. Life on Mars may have been possible during its early era as a planet similar to Earth is today. If Mars had moving plates, did it also have oceans? Water is one of the keys to whether life may have existed on Mars. If there was water, where is it now? Did cosmic radiation strip away the atmosphere and the water? Over the next two decades, NASA will conduct several missions to look for environmental conditions that were ever suitable to sustain life. One aim will be to identify rocks and minerals formed in the presence of water. Another aim is to map water reservoirs thought to exist beneath the surface. Water ice present at the Martian poles will be investigated, as well as studies of the planet's climate. NASA doesn't stop there. One day, humans will be exploring Mars.
0: Thanks, Natalie, for that report. You're listening to Discovery Science Radio. Still to come, we have the ins and outs of face transplants. That was Trout Fishing in Quebec with Fungi Zong. You're listening to Discovery Science Radio. Now, novels, movies and other media have long been a step or two ahead of scientific and technological advances. Describing tomorrow's possible technologies today. Also, given our appetite for thrillers, action, and psychopathic killers in Hollywood movies and cheap paperback novels, we are often exposed to the worst possibilities of a new technology, even before it is a reality. Now, one of the ever-popular science fiction plots is the facial transplant, the secret weapon of the ever-devious spies and criminal masterminds. Now, it seems, science fiction has once again become reality. Here's Jackie Peffer with all the
2: details.
3: Yes, I think you're on the right chord there, Matt. In fact, I believe there was a film a few years ago. Was it Face Off?
2: Yeah, that was. who was in that? It was Nicolas Nick Cage, Cage and John Travolta. Travolta. John Travolta.
3: Yes. Well, it seems that a couple of French doctors have done what's called a partial face transplant. Now, what they've done is they um, had a young victim from a dog bite and they've facially transplanted a chin, nose and lips onto this victim to try and make up for the effects of this dog bite but what it's done is it's opened up as do all new technologies it's opened up this huge can of ethical issues let all those little worms out into the community that we're all now going to stress about and worry and debate for good reason too but there's a group in Cleveland who have proposed or they've been trying to get approval for a full facial transplant now these French doctors uh, one of them who was actually called Jean-Michel de Menard. You can tell that uh, I didn't study French at school. He was also the same doctor for Clint Hallam, who in 1998, you might remember, got the hand transplant. Oh, yeah,
2: he was the Kiwi guy, right? And he got a hand transplant. Hand
3: transplant.
2: Which then didn't go so well.
3: Yes, well, it seems he stopped taking his immunosuppressants, ah. and of course they had to amputate it. So... You know, same doctor, he's gone off now, and though they're trying out facial transplants. Now, facial transplants are quite different from hand transplants. The case with uh, Mr. Hallam, the biggest problem was not that the surgery was going to be difficult because they knew surgically they could do it, but the need for all these immunosuppressants and what they were really worried about was whether the body would reject the hand.
2: Yeah, because the immunosuppressants, correct me if I'm wrong, they're drugs that you take to stop your body saying, hang on, that's not my hand or that's yes. not my face. We've got to get rid of that. <laughs> that doesn't belong to me. That's foreign. Do.
3: Yeah, We don't want it here. Well, you're exactly right. And of course, he stopped taking his in- immunosuppressants. The immune system kicks back into gear and goes, hang on, that hand's not mine.
0: But, but presumably, uh, taking these drugs, obviously, your body can't fight other things like colds or for instance so obviously there's a lot a lot of side effects of, of having to take these drugs you, I mean, you I guess so it? yeah
3: mm. well the face or well, doing a facial transplant is a lot more complicated than doing a hand with the facial transplant what you have to do is you have to find a donor now this donor has to of course with all donors that's somebody who's just passed or in the process of passing because you you want organs which are nice and still still alive so you have to go and find what they're looking for is patients or donors who are pronounced brain dead and they're harvesting what's called a facial flap and that's like all the skin across oh, your face and it doesn't and so, sound good it doesn't does sound nice no. no and and then what they have to do is they have to dissect it of course off the patient but what the where it really gets complicated is all the vessels so lots of arteries and all the little nerves in the face how or where they're cutting that from the donor makes a big difference because in the healing process, where where the nerves are being cut on the face or and where the nerves are being cut on the patient, they've got to sort of fuse together. So if you've, if you've got what's called this facial flap, um, the more branches there are on all these different nerves, the more healing time you're going to need. So the less branches there are, the less nerves there are to sort of combine... Now, as you can imagine, this is pretty hotly debated. I mean, how would you guys feel about a facial transplant?
2: Well, I mean, I guess one of the questions here really is... Do you end up looking like the other person, or do you end up looking like yourself, just with a big scar, or do you look like something in between? Well, I-, I heard they actually they claimed that the the underlying sort of muscles
0: and bone structure of the person getting the face transplant was was they claimed going to be more of a dis- deciding factor in the in the sort of final appearance than the person that they got it from. So that the skin would you know, literally just be you know a thin skin over what was still there before. So so it's not like evil John
2: Travolta suddenly looks like <laughs> nice Nicolas Cage, or was it the other way around oh, I
0: can, I, can't I, can't remember. I think it was the
2: other way around. <laughs> right, right,
3: right well when they're looking at a donor and um, a patient one of the things that they take into consideration is the facial structure and the facial size because they want to try and match those up as much as possible because if you've got somebody with a really small face donating their skin to somebody with a really big face it's going to look a bit
1: strange and what about keeping the sex the same you'd want a woman's face oh yeah know. that's a good don't one don't want to suddenly yeah. have a beard <laughs> that'd, that'd be weird. Or just permanent stubble. Yeah,
2: But one of the, one of the big ethical things that, that I think about about this, that, that's got to be up there leading with the ethics stakes, is the guy who did the transplant, when he gave the, the hand transplant to the, to the Kiwi guy, the Kiwi guy was begging him for it, basically saying, I really want this transplant, and then ended up not taking he his drugs and they it. had to get rid of it. It sounds like this woman who's had the face transplant was similarly a bit unstable, and so there is a question mark here about, you know, is this doctor really
3: doing the right thing? Well, these French doctors haven't actually published their, their findings in any journal, which sort of cuts into the credibility of their work. So it'll be interesting to see how facial transplants or how this patient goes over the next few years and how facial transplants end up in our community.
0: Thanks, uh, Jackie, for that report. I'm sure I'll sleep better tonight knowing that I have Donor A on my driver's license.
1: Hi, I'm Gates McFadden, and I played Dr. Beverly Crusher on Star Trek The Next Generation. And I know Dr. Crusher very well, and I am sure that when she's off duty, she would urge you to listen to Discovery. Make it so.
0: And finally, the news that didn't make the news.
2: Firstly, the word of the day with Chris. Chris. Yes indeed. The uh, the word of the year according to the new Oxford American Dictionary. I didn't even know that they actually voted for these things. Anyone want to take a guess? Word word of the year. What's been the biggest word that's come into common usage in 2005? Google. Sedition? Google? No, it's been around for a bit sedition in <laughs> Australia. It's actually podcast, which strange as it may seem because We here at Discovery have a podcast as well. You can listen to it and listen to the show over and over and over again if you want to. Anyway, podcast is the word of the year, and its official definition is a digital recording of a radio broadcast or similar program made available on the internet for downloading to a personal audio player. That's podcast. Now, the interesting thing about it is that they were going to put it into the dictionary last year, but not enough people were actually using it. So podcast really has become the big thing in 2005. That's kind of cool.
0: Cool. And you can get uh, our podcast at uh, feeds.feedburner.com slash discovery radio, I believe. That's correct.
3: And I think you could even tell your friends about our podcast system as well, couldn't we?
0: (laughs) Now, uh, Natalie, what have you got for us today?
1: Um, Scientists have developed a a mobile robot that uses uh, real mouse whiskers to uh, discriminate between different textures allowing uh, more sensitive touch, and so it can move more efficiently through tight, dark places where you couldn't otherwise use vision.
2: Real mouse whiskers? Yep. Is this kind of like in the previous story where we had the face transplant where we had to wait for, in this case, a mouse to die and donate its whiskers? What's...
1: Uh, similar, except uh, they're attached to membranes, which... Uh, Produce, send a signal to a computer,
2: but they don't just pluck the whiskers off the mice, is what I'm getting at, because that it's uh, That's cruel.
1: They're probably mice donors.
2: All
0: right. So this is some sort of mouse robot cyborg <laughs> that can uh, intelligently navigate some maze.
1: Yeah, and uh, and it would be more effective if you could incorporate uh, other sensors such as vision and sound, maybe bat sound or, or something. Yeah.
2: yeah. But, I mean, the, the whiskers, it's, it's an incredibly sensitive thing. I mean, you just have to walk up to a sleeping cat and just, just tickle its little whiskers, and it's its immediately awake.
1: Or, or so, move the air around it. Yeah, even.
2: yeah. Nice one.
0: Wow. And, and now, Jackie, I hear you have a rather interesting story.
3: I do have an interesting story. Well, a new study of bats has just gone to, gone to show us that apparently, if you or if you're a bat, if you have big testicles, you're going to have a tiny little brain. Yes, they've done a study and they've looked and found that in bats, females that are promiscuous, um, because of course they're running around and trying to overpopulate...
2: Dirty bats.
3: Dirty. um, Natural selection has meant that new bats, or little baby boy bats, are ending up with giant big testicles. And some of these bats... The testicles or the genitals actually make up for eight point five percent of their body mass
2: that that's a lot
3: that's a lot yeah.
2: <laughs> so what's the story here that that the bigger the testicles, the smaller the brains smaller
3: the, brain. the brains This is happening with bats that are promiscuous, but bats who are monogamous and have or female bats that have one man looking after them and protecting them, those bats are likely to have bigger brains
2: <laughs> so. Does that mean then that like, the reason that they're monogamous is because they're interested in the intellect of intellect. the other bats? I mean, this is basically where we're coming from here. The bigger the brain, the more chance you've got of attracting someone else with your brain as opposed to, putting it bluntly, your balls.
3: Pretty much, yeah.
2: Cool. There you go. Cool. Does this apply in humans as well?
3: I don't know. Maybe they should go off and do a study of <laughs> male, male testicle to brain size. Don't See? we
1: already know? <laughs> Thanks for that.
0: You've been listening to Discovery, the national science radio show. Today you've been hearing from Jackie Peffer, Natalie Stabe, Noel Hanna and Chris Stewart. And I'm Matthew Francis. Today's show was produced by Chris Stewart with technical assistance from Noel Hanna. If you'd like more info on today's show, you have a nagging question about science, or you just want to say hi, drop us an email at discovery at 2, that's the number two s e r dot com. If you'd like to subscribe to our podcast, just check out feeds.feedburner.com slash Discovery Radio. Discovery is recorded at the studios of 2SER 107.3 in Sydney and is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network.